baby being sick as a consequence of David's sin. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? As grief-stricken as he was while the child lived, what will he be like now that the child is gone? Is their thinking. Verse 19, But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house when he required, and when he required, they set bread before him and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, what thing is this that thou hast done? David, thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive, but when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And then this great statement of victory, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. When God says no, Let's pray. Father, help us in the time that we have together this evening as we look into your word. I pray that you'd give us practical help. Lord, all of us have prayed prayers before, and at least to this point, uh, they've been answered with no or wait. And uh, that's a, a difficulty for us sometimes. And Lord, it requires faith for us to uh, continue to trust your plan. And I pray that you'd give us help from your word this evening that we would learn better tonight to trust your word and to trust your character, especially at the times that you say no. And we pray this for the glory of your name, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ's name, and asking that you would help us to follow you better than ever before as a result of help we get tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I preface the message tonight by saying this, praise the Lord, there are plenty of times that he says yes. How many of you can look back and you can even just without much time at all look back and see where God answered a prayer, yes, and the, the glory of God in doing that. Remember, too, as we've said before uh, here at the outset of the message, that his no is always better than any yes that we had hoped for. His yes is always better than our hoping for a no, and uh, his wait is always better than getting what we thought we needed right now. No is hard to take, whether you're a six-year-old, a 16-year-old, or a 60-year-old. No is hard to take. We think we know what we want based on our six circumstances, our situation. Maybe you can look back and there's something that you particularly wanted or even thought you needed. And you committed yourself to prayer and asking the Lord to answer that prayer, to provide for that need, to work in that situation. And another thing that can sometimes make it difficult when God says no is that we remember he's omnipotent. It's in his ability to do anything he wants to do. And so we put all of this together 
And yet we go to the Lord at times, we ask God uh, for working in a situation, hoping for a yes, and yet God sometimes says no. For purposes beyond our ability to grasp or understand. And let me just say this again, I'm glad I have a God who is bigger than my finite comprehension. Imagine how limited a God would be if I could completely grasp him. I want a God bigger than that. By the way, I have a God bigger than that. Okay. But for purposes beyond our ability to grasp or understand, the Lord sometimes says no. I look at famous Bible characters. I think about Job. There were questions he asked that God didn't answer right away. Or God said, wait. One of God's purposes in doing that was to bring Job to a point of just being overwhelmed with the bigness of God. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased, the psalmist said. Or it may be a case where we do understand reasons why God would say no. In David's case, he understood, I believe, a reason that God would say no, and yet he's still beseeching the Lord, still asking God for grace, and God still says no. Whether it was a Job, I've been reading in the book of Jeremiah, there were questions that God asked, or that Jeremiah asked God, and God said no. I think about Habakkuk. Lord, when are you going to judge your people? Why haven't you judged your people? And so then God said, I'm going to judge my people and I'm going to use Babylon to do it. And then Habakkuk was faced with a double dilemma because he saw that wickedness in his own people needed to be judged, but the Babylonians were the wickedest people in the world at that time and it just flabbergasted Habakkuk that God would use the Babylonians to do that. And he would ask God for a different way, a different approach, and God would say, no, but listen, when I'm done with the Babylonians, using them as the hand of my judgment on my people, I'm going to deal with the Babylonians too. The book of Habakkuk is an interesting study of the scenarios of when God at times says no. But I want us to understand this this evening. Here's the proposition. When God says no, I want you to understand that there's always another open door that's far better and far greater and proven to be that than if we would have gotten what we were first asking for. You know, it's interesting. There are times when I've asked God to do something and God said no, and then time has passed and his answer was yes, and he worked in a different way. And with the passing of time, I look back and I'm like, man, I'm sure glad God said no. How many of you have a time like that in life? You can look back and you prayed for something and God said no. And at first you were disappointed, but then you look back later on, you realize, whew, I'm glad God said no. How many of you, before you got married, you prayed, Lord, please let me marry that girl or please let me marry that guy? And how many of you are glad God said no to whoever you were asking for and said yes to who you're married to now? Case in point, I want us to consider briefly tonight three instances of direction from the Bible that we can get when God says no and living in the realization that even when God says no, there are still open doors and what he is going to do is far greater and better than if he'd have said yes to our request. David, the man after God's own heart, the passage before us. Of course, you know the background of the story the sin with Bathsheba, the baby that was conceived as a result of that. God 
to judge David and so that his name would be vindicated in the eye. Remember, God told David through Nathan, God told him, he said, because of what you've done, you've given great cause to the enemies of God to blaspheme. And there are times when God will allow the consequences of our sin, though he forgives us, he'll allow us to experience at least a measure of the consequences of our sin so that the watching world can know that we serve a real God who chastens his children. It's a testimony to his holiness. And by the way, what is one of the greatest attributes of God that the scripture tells us is proven when we are chastened? Yes, his holiness, but Hebrews tells us his love, whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth. And so just know when chastening comes, it's because God loves you. It's because God loves me. But as I look at this passage of scripture, there's instruction in David's response. And remember, he is the man after God's own heart. And so one of the ways that that's demonstrated, even as a follow-up to his sin, is that he confessed his sin and he said about his sin what God said about his sin and actually revealed, even from the fallen human perspective, that he was a man after God's own heart because he said about his sin what God said about his sin. But David is begging God to spare the life of this child. God, be gracious. Would you please be gracious? He's laying on the ground. He's refusing to eat. He's refusing to bathe. God says no. And what is David's response? The Bible tells us in verse number 20 that he rose from the earth and washed himself. He took a bath. He put on some cologne or deodorant or whatever they used in those days to anoint themselves. He changed his apparel and he came into the house of the Lord. There was a physical response that David demonstrated even when God said no. He didn't go into sulking. He didn't continue laying on the ground, moaning and groaning in the dust and the ashes. He didn't go into a pity party because I asked God to heal this baby, to spare this baby's life, and he didn't. How unjust and unfair of him. He didn't do that. He trusted God's work. He got up. He took a bath. He put on some cologne. He changed his clothes. And he went to the house of the Lord. He washed. There was a physical response. He worshiped. There was a spiritual response. After going to the house of the Lord, the Bible tells us that he worshiped. He attributed the worth to God that was God's and God's alone. He submitted himself to the hand of God, even though God had told him no. He submitted himself. He acknowledged God's worthiness in his life, God's holiness, God's character, and his submission to the Lord. And so he worshiped. And then I notice verse number 21, after he goes to his own house, asks for bread to be set before him, his servants are puzzled by his response. Let me just tell you something. There are many times in our own lives when we respond biblically, it puzzles people. Because it's so often counterintuitive to a normal human response. And that happens in David's case. He gets up. He doesn't go into a pity party. He washes himself. He goes to the house of the Lord. He worships. He comes home. He says to the people of his house, let's eat. I'm hungry. And they're puzzled by his response. And in this case, he gives witness to his trust in the Lord. He washes, he worships, and he gives witness to his ongoing trust in the Lord. 
he explains when they asked him, what is the explanation for this response? Verse 22, he said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? He's speaking about the grace of God. He's not questioning the grace of God generally at all. He is essentially saying this, I was asking God to be gracious to me in the area of this, li this child's life. He's not in any way calling into question the grace of God as an attribute in the character of God. Verse 23, but now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I can go to him, but he shall not return to me. He gives witness socially or at the vertical or horizontal level to his trust in the Lord that prayer was not wasted. He got an answer, even if it wasn't the one he had hoped for. He gave testimony to the grace of God and the goodness of God. I believe that David would have gone on further to say, I actually got less than I deserved of this. And he did. But David also gave witness of the promise of reunion. He said, can I bring him back again? Understood answer, no, I can't bring this child back from the dead. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Aren't you glad we were among those who sorrow as those which have hope? And we are not among those who sorrow as which they have no hope or do not have hope. And so he lives in the reality of a coming reunion with this one who's gone before him. Even when he's asked God to spare this life, he washes himself, he worships, and he witnesses to his trust in the Lord, to the reality of prayer, to the grace of God, and the goodness of God. As I think about the promise of reunion, I'm reminded of a song that a man that uh, was a teacher in the music department in Bible college wrote years ago, Heaven seems a little sweeter when I think of whom I'll meet. What a glorious reunion that will be. But far more than this reunion is the precious, blessed truth, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, I shall see. Heaven does seem sweeter when we think about reunions that are coming. And the reality of that in David's life, even though he was experiencing the consequences of sin, the reality of that promised reunion brought him great strength and hope. I think about other believers who've experienced the trauma of divorce. They've done everything they can to reconcile. They've worked towards it. They've desired it. And yet they found no cooperation in the other party. And a marriage ended in divorce. And I'm thinking of folks that I know and love dearly who responded in their divorce situation like David did. They said, I'm not going to fault God for this. Yes, I'm brokenhearted, but God remains the same and I'm going to continue to move forward in victory and hope. And what a testimony that is. I think about others like Oliver B. Green Died in 1976 at the age of 61 years of age. Relatively young. How many of you have heard the name Oliver B. Green before? I have some of his books in my library. You can still hear him on Christian radio stations. Got saved when he was 20 years of age, 1935. Went to North Greenville University. And because he didn't take too kindly to the convention's influence there, as I understand the story, he got expelled from North Greenville University. And so he um, got a tent and started preaching in evangelistic meetings in his mid-20s. 
Now, I've not read his biography from disgrace to grace, but as I understand it in that biography, he testifies to the fact that he knew because of the way that he lived before he got saved, the wickedness of his lifestyle, everything that he was into, he knew he had done physical damage to his body that would likely shorten his life. But he determined, even if that's the case, I'm going to serve God with every bit that I have And he served God faithfully until he was 61 years of age and died. He kept meticulous records. And it's said that some 200,000 people in the course of his ministry trusted Christ as Savior. And here's a man who could have said, ask God to heal me. Maybe he did as he began to deal with the physical issues that were the result of sin in his early days. God said no. And he embraced that as God's plan. I want you to notice the second instant. This is probably the most familiar to all of us, and that is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Another instance of someone asking God to do something, and God said no. And from the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, we see a second instance. David, the man after God's own heart. Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. A second instance of someone asking the Lord to do something, and the Lord said no. Notice, if you would, verse number 7. Verse number 7. You know what? Let me back up and read from verse number 1, and the reason that you'll see here in just a moment why I want to do this. It is not expedient for me, verse number 1, doubtless to glory. It's not fitting or appropriate for me to brag about what God's done through me. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then as a token of his humility, he speaks in the third person rather than speaking of himself in the first person. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. In other words, he's saying, you know, when that vision took place, I'm still not sure about all the nature of it. I just know it happened. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. It's believed by many Bible commentators that Paul here is admitting that he knows he has a tendency to pride. He knows it. And he understands that I would desire to glory. And to brag about what I've experienced that others haven't. But I know that if I did that, I'd end up being a fool and I don't want to be a fool. Because pride always makes a fool out of a man. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest... I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a physical infirmity, it's understood. The messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Uh, You can ask ten commentators what they believe that thorn in the flesh is, and you'll get ten answers. My personal opinion on it, based on things that he says in the book of Galatians and other places is that it was some kind of eye infirmity that may well have been the result of his getting blinded on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. You might have a different opinion on it. If you do, great. We'll settle it when we get to heaven, okay? Whatever it was, it was a thorn 
in the flesh. It was a physical infirmity. And notice verse 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, Paul then responds to the word of the Lord given to him in verse number 9. Most gladly, Paul says, Therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest or mantle upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Just let that soak in. I glory in infirmities. I take pleasure in infirmities. The word take pleasure, the two words take pleasure, uh, comes from a word that literally carries with it this idea, to see as good. I see them as good because of what God is using them to accomplish in my life. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches. That's the mockery that he received for his identity with Christ. In necessities, this is talking about physical needs where he was hungry and needed food, where he was naked and needed clothing, where he was cold and needed warmth. In persecution, this is actual physical persecution that a record of is given in the previous chapter, 2 Corinthians 11. And in distresses, that's being in emotional or mental difficult situations where Paul didn't know if he was going to come out of it alive. But notice this, it was all, he took pleasure in it for Christ's sake. He gloried in those infirmities. And so the background of Paul asking the Lord three times, I beseech, the, the word literally means begged God. And I think maybe part of Paul's thinking would have been this, Lord, You know if you remove this physical infirmity, there's so much more I could do for you. From his human perspective, his thought was likely or possibly this, that this is limiting me, this physical infirmity. He begs God to take it away. And God says no. Verse number 9, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient. So the background, Paul's given the abundance of revelation by his own testimony. He speaks of, I believe, a tendency to pride. But what is Paul's response? He doesn't say, I asked God to heal me and God didn't do it. God's failed me. No, he took God's answer of no and he tapped into God's grace in his life. He trusted the word of the Lord. When God says no, trust the word of the Lord. You notice this, verse number 9, and he said unto me. The Lord spoke to him. And can I tell you that every time you have an open Bible in front of your hand, God is not silent. Or in front of your face, God's not silent. When God says no in some issue where you're praying and asking God to work, whatever it may be, and the answer seems to be no, trust his word. Trust his word as it relates to his character, his person, his goodness, his sovereignty, his love. Trust his word as it relates to his plan. Trust his word as it relates to the fact that even though his no is opposite of what I was wanting, that he's still working all things together for my good and his glory. Trust his word. Testify of his grace and of his glory. The Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient. And then he said uh, that in, in Paul's weakness, his strength, God's strength is made perfect. It's the idea of filling up all the nooks and crannies to the very top so that there's no space left. Do you know what I've been thinking about lately? 
I think sometimes in our 21st century American mindset, I'm speaking to myself, okay? I'm not going to say this about any of you. I'm speaking to myself. But I think sometimes we think that, that when we're strong, we can do more for God. And that God's, that my strength is an asset, in a sense, to the Lord. Do you know that that's exactly opposite of what the Bible says? My strength many times actually gets in the way of people seeing the Lord. My plan, my ability many times can get in the way. And so the Lord says, no, it's in your weakness that God's strength is made perfect, that God is glorified, that the need is filled out completely to the top with no spaces left open, if you would. And so Paul says as a result of that, that mindset, that understanding, most gladly, verse number, uh, verse number 9, the middle of the verse, most gladly, therefore, uh, and I know I've shared this before, but let me shock your socks off. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe not. Okay. How many of you have heard the word hedonism before? Hedonism has a negative connotation. It's literally the idea of unrestrained pleasure. Generally, the connotation is sinful pleasure. The word that Paul uses here, he said, most gladly, therefore, the, the original word in the Greek is the word from which we get the word hedonism. It's the idea of, of unrestrained joy. Paul said, because of how God's plan works, even if it means I'm weak so that his strength is made perfect and that I've got to reply, re, rely completely upon the sufficiency of his grace and see that my resources bring nothing to the table. And that God's going to leave me in this humanly limited situation so that he can get the glory through the manifestation of his strength. Paul said, when I look at it this way, it brings me unrestrained pleasure. Even in my infirmities. Even in the reproaches, the necessities, the persecutions, the distresses. For Christ's sake, I take pleasure in God's plan, even though it means a thorn in the flesh. Why? And I want you to get this. Get this. Paul's big picture perspective. The reason God did this is to keep me from being exalted above measure, to keep me from becoming a victim to pride. Here's the comparison before we move to the final point. I want you to get this. Okay. The pain of a thorn in the flesh is infinitely better than the painful consequences of our pride. The pain of a thorn in the flesh that keeps me humble, that keeps me weak, that keeps me dependent is infinitely better than the pain that would be the result of the consequence of my pride. Because pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall and because of that Paul said I can take pleasure in these infirmities and I will most gladly therefore glory in them God thank you for this thorn in the flesh it doesn't fit our general 21st century American mindset very well does it but it's biblical David the man after God's own heart asked and God said no. 
and we learn from his response how we can respond. Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, asked for deliverance from the thorn in the flesh, and God said no, and we can learn from his response. I want you to go with me to a final passage, a third instance, Matthew chapter 26. I believe that this will help us to transition into the Lord's table together here in just a few moments. Matthew chapter number 26. I approach this passage with great reverence because I do not want to do anything that misrepresents what takes place here for sure. Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 36. Then cometh Jesus with them, that is his disciples, unto a place called Gethsemane, a place of the olive pressing, a place of crushing. And saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to the disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Verse number 46, those first five words there, rise, let us be going. Several commentators will tell you that they believe that within that there is something of a military leader's challenge of a captain saying, forward, let's go. As they charge into battle. I want you to notice a final instance. And though the it is not explicitly stated here that God said no, it is definitely implied. Remember this as we think about the background. Jesus, God's very own son, saying, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Remember the background of this. Jesus' life was the only perfect life that had ever lived, ever. If anybody, if anybody should have been able to have justification for escaping this situation, it was Jesus. And yet, as all God and all man, he was there drinking the cup of God's wrath against sin, the suffering that sin required. He was there in the place of the pressing, the crushing of olives, so that from his being pressed, healing oil could be produced for my sin-sick soul and yours. He was there as the rose of Sharon, 
being crushed so that the sweet fragrance of his life would overpower the stench of death that we deserve. This was preparation for the cross. It was also an example being set for us as Christians. Jesus, get this, was all God, but he was all man too. And in his full humanity, even as he anticipated what it would mean to drink of the cup of God's wrath as your substitute in mind, and being omniscient, knowing what he was about to endure in his trial and his beating and then ultimately the cross. He who did not deserve of all of us to be the one in that place was the one who was there. And for a brief second, Lord, if it be possible, the answer between the Godhead had already been settled in love. And Jesus immediately submitted his human will. And I got to tell you, I'm really glad that this was the one thing that God said no to. I think about Psalm chapter number two, God the Father telling the Son, ask of me everything that the Son has ever asked and ever will ask of the Father, the Father will give him with this one exception. And all of us should say, praise the Lord, God said no. And praise the Lord, then Jesus said, yes, I will submit. The author of Hebrews, in addressing this very situation, this very event, this very scene in several different passages, talked about the model obedience to the will of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, in Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 12. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners, lest ye be weary and faint in your own minds who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. And so from this third instance of God saying no, and we see Jesus' response, a pattern for us is established, and as Jesus endured the cross and submitted to the Father's will, there are times when we'll ask God to do something and God will say no. And it may mean a cross as a follower of the Lord Jesus, but let us follow the Lord Jesus' pattern and submit to the Father's will because his will is perfect. And I see this as well, that he embraced the joy beyond the obedience of the cross. He embraced the joy that God has promised on the other side of the no. No, I'm not going to deliver from this. No, I'm not going to take this thorn away. No, I'm not going to restore this child's life. But what I have on the other side of it will provide greater joy than if I'd have said yes to what you wanted. Embrace the joy. Looking back on these three instances that we've considered before we move to a conclusion tonight. And I want to be really careful about this. Because I'm not in any way minimizing the life of the child that the Lord took from David and Bathsheba. 
But as you read the flow of the context, it was immediately after the instance that we just read that David and Bathsheba came together and God granted conception and another child would be brought into this world whose name was Solomon. You ever thought about the blessing in our scripture from having Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon? And I think about the Apostle Paul. I was thinking about 13 epistles and the richness of Romans and 1st, 2nd Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus and Philemon. And if you throw in Hebrews, as Paul maybe being the author of Hebrews. Can you imagine if the thorn in the flesh would have been removed and Paul would have been brought down by pride? What would our New Testament... I'm speaking hypothetically. Okay. God knew that more could be produced with Paul with a thorn in the flesh than Paul without one. When we look back on these instances, we come to this third one. And I think about the fruit that resulted from the father saying no and the son submitting to the father's will and going to the cross. Because of the cross, you and I have redemption. We've been bought by that precious blood that was shed. Because of the cross, we have reconciliation. We who were the enemies of God have now through Christ been brought into a relationship of peace. We have the hope of resurrection. <laughs> to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. We have the hope of reunion. Heaven seems a little sweeter when I think of whom I'll meet. And best of all, we shall see Jesus. Because Jesus said yes when the Father said no. I have the hope of eternal rest. I will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus. And so will all those who've trusted Christ. When God says no, his plan is always better. Amen? It doesn't mean that he's being hard or callous. It doesn't mean weakness in the divine. It doesn't mean deafness. But rather it means tenderness. It means closeness. It means the greatness of God's glory, the fullness of his strength, even in my weakness. It means experiencing the riches of his grace, the sufficiency of his grace. It may well be that as discouraging as it may seem, as disappointing as it may seem, it may well be, in fact, if you live in submission to the Lord, I can say this, it's not a may well be, it will be. Far better in the end, when God says no to what you think you need is a yes, God says no to it, it will be better in the end, period. If we submit to him. I close with a simple illustration. When I was a boy, one Christmas, I wanted a very nice pocket knife. I picked out the particular pocket knife that I wanted 
I had put in my list early. So I knew mom and dad would have the time to order it or whatever they needed to do. I had wanted this pocket knife. I had searched it out. I knew exactly which one I wanted. Christmas morning came, and I was a little disappointed when the box that I was given as my main Christmas present was this massive box. And I looked at it, and I thought, that's not a pocket knife. I tore into that box, opened it up, and there was a box within a box. I opened up that box, there was a box within a box. And there was probably four or five boxes. You know how parents will antagonize their children like that. Finally, I got down to this small box at the heart of my nesting blocks. Got down to this small package, and I opened it up. And on top of it, when I opened up that small box, was not a pocket knife. It was a small can of WD-40. Now, you know me well enough to know I'm very transparent, and it was very difficult to hide the disappointment. Now, the rest of the story is is that my parents had put a false bottom in that box. I still have yet to get my vengeance on them for that one. I'm kidding. I pulled the false bottom out, and there was that pocket knife. I got what I asked for. But you know what? There are times in life when you ask God for something and you really want it and you get all the way to the bottom and God still says no and the knife isn't there. But here's how I want you to think about this. This will help you. This has helped me. The knife may not be there. What you wanted may not be there. But there is a key there that will open a door that in the long run will be God's working on your behalf that is far better than what you could have had if he'd have given you what you wanted. When God says no, just keep looking for a key. Because there's an open door that's far better. Far better. Father, I pray that you'd help us to think biblically. Lord, I know for folks, even for us in different times in the middle of trials, it's not easy to think this way. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God, I'm asking you tonight to help us to rely on, to trust your word, to look to the scripture, to hear what you say to us in your word and how that will strengthen us. And with the eye of faith, we'll be able to find a key that will open a door to something far better in the long run than we could have imagined, even when we may have faced initial disappointment that you said no. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Joy.